Let's, let's talk about uh, God's Word. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, we are uh, concluding our study of what we usually call the Lord's Prayer, uh, but what we've called the model prayer, I'm stealing that from John MacArthur, um, is, is because that's really what it is, right? This isn't a, a prayer that Jesus prayed. We know that because he, he prays about forgiveness of sins, but rather he, it is, it is a, a blueprint for us, if you will. Uh, it is a recipe that has all the ingredients necessary that if you would just follow uh, and use those ingredients, you will get a, a good prayer. So with that, if you will stand with me out of reverence for God's word, we'll read uh, the, the entire passage, the Lord's Prayer, model prayer. Matthew the Evangelist writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, starting in verse 9. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, I ask as we always do, you would open our, our hearts and our mind, our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our hands, our feet, that we would go in obedience to Christ. Would you be so kind to us uh, that you would help us uh, to, to, to learn to pray as you would have us to pray. And may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name your son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to do something that you don't like. Um, if you need to, uh, grab your bulletin or piece of paper, and I need you to solve this math problem. Go ahead and write it out. Three times four plus one times four. I'm interested in seeing what, what some of you all are going to come up with. This is a real math problem that has, has riddled uh, people in the past. Uh, so for those of you who, who are quick at math, I'm just interested. What's, what sort of answer have you got? Madeline, you got, a, you got an answer? 16. Okay. Does anyone have a different answer? My, you got 16? Okay. All right. What about some of you old folks, right? You've been out of, you've been out of school a little bit. 16. Everyone's doing 16. I was really hoping one of you Kentucky fans would come up with something else, right? Maybe, let me, let me do it at 12, is it 13, and whatever 13 times 4 is. Did anyone do that? You did. Did you just go straight left to right? 3 times 4 is 12 plus 1, 13, and whatever 13 times 4. If you did, you're wrong. That's wrong. Did you, did you do PEMDAS? Please excuse my dear Aunt Sally. What we grew up in Owen County was Pokachar eats muddy dogs and snakes. Uh, that, that's redneck there. We had a teacher named Miss Pokachar. Uh, and so uh, we just named it after her. Pokachar eats muddy dog snakes. Parentheses exponents. You don't have that. You do your multiplications first. Three times four. And of course, one times four. And then you do your addition and subtraction. I do believe that you all are correct with the number uh, 16. I didn't put it. I didn't Google it. So let's just pretend that is the, the right answer. Now, now the reason I'm just curious to see if you can come up with the right answer is uh, a few years ago in Lafayette, Indiana, there was a young boy who was struggling with his math problems. And he was working on them all night. He just couldn't solve this one. It was just too difficult for him. And he didn't know what else to do. So he called a number that his family had told him that if ever you were in trouble, if ever you had an emergency, you call this number. And he had an emergency. He had a problem. He couldn't solve this math problem. So he called 911. You can Google this. You can find the story. The, 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 the lady who answered the dispatcher, she, she picked up pretty quickly that this was not a genuine emergency. But rather, it was a young boy who shouldn't have called 911. I get it. But, but if, if you just deal with people as human beings, which is what she did, she actually, over the dispatch, helped him solve this math problem. 
the news people came and interviewed the dispatcher and, 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 and she, she sort of walked through her thinking process and, 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 and her side of the story. And, and rightly so. She became a little local celebrity there during that news cycle. But what I, I want us to do is to think about that little boy. Now, I don't think you should call 911 because you can't solve a math problem, but I do got to give him some credit. He had been told that if ever you get in a situation, if ever you have a need or a challenge or something else, there is a number you can call. It is 911. Now, he honestly thought this was such a situation. So, having been given the permission to call anytime he needed to, he called when he needed to. Now, again, I don't recommend calling 911. But you do realize you have a heavenly father who's equally available to you. That you can cry out to God right now in the midst of your troubles, your fears, your difficulties, and everything else. That's the good news of of prayer. That we have direct access to our creator and redeemer. uh, and, and, And he welcomes the voice of his children. And we don't have to worry about maybe we shouldn't call him like like. Calling 911. Well, last week you may remember we, we, we started the Lord's Prayer, the, the first half of it, and we and we looked at two of the four components of prayer. And they included, first of all, adoration. We saw there early on, hallowed be your name, right? And that, that you understand God's essence and God's person and everything else. That that what prayer is, is we mere humans approaching the throne of God. You remember the story of Esther where she was not to come before the king unannounced. The good news is we are welcome to come to the king unannounced. And this is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of everything. Uh, and then we saw last week that out of adoration comes thanksgiving. That we are to be a thankful people. Given the access we have to our creator and redeemer, how can we not be thankful? He, he rules and reigns and he is good and loving. What we see starting in verse 11 is the third component of prayer, and that is supplication. (coughs) Supplication. Uh, And in here, I want to argue that Jesus encourages us to make our request in two categories. We, we, We know of one, which is the obvious reading of the text, but there's another one I think we neglect far too much. This first request is a physical request, a physical request. Notice the language there, give us this day our daily bread. Now, notice here, Jesus is encouraging us to bring our needs to God. His main concern in prayer, in this prayer, is our daily sustenance. Remember that Jesus is preaching to a congregation. He is preaching to a people who did not know if they would have bread for that day. And if they had bread today, secure, they didn't know if they'd have bread tomorrow. Many people went to bed hungry on a regular basis. We, we sort of struggle with that. We know that if, if, if suddenly, unannounced, because the weathermen never get the weather wrong, but if suddenly we were to leave service and discover 20 inches of snow outside, we know that we could, with the food in our house right now, survive for a week. Three meals a day. We know we could do that. Now, you may not want to eat everything that's in your house right now, but we could. And we all know that we're all going to make a a beeline to to Kroger and save a lot and Walmarts and everything else. But we know that we could survive with enough food that's in our house right now. We know that. That was not the case in the days of Jesus. And so in this prayer, he's he's reminding them that it is God who provides our basic needs. At the same time, I don't think it's an accident that Jesus uses the word bread. He could have said, uh, give us this day our daily steak. I'd be all right with that. 
Give us this day our, our daily uh, uh, Chinese takeout. I'd be okay with that too. Uh, a Speedy Gonzalez at any of our Mexican restaurants on the east side. I'd be okay with that. But rather he chooses bread. Bread. It's generic and common enough to describe our physical needs in general. At the same time, bread was perhaps the most common food source in uh, the first century Roman and ancient Near Eastern world. It is also commonly found throughout the Bible. Think about it. Whenever the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness and, and they start complaining that they're hungry, what happens? God sends manna from heaven. Now, what is manna? It is a type of bread. In Matthew chapter 4, and Jesus being tempted by the devil, what's that first temptation in Matthew 4? Turn this desert of stone into bread. Bread. I hope it's old Charlie's rose, but you, you get the point nonetheless. Turn them into bread. And remember that, that this would be like shopping at Kroger when you're hungry. You're convinced you could eat everything. Here, Jesus hadn't eaten anything for 40 days, and he's in a desert of stone, and, and, and the Satan is saying, turn all of these stones in the bread, and, I, and let's see if you can eat all of it. You're so hungry. Or consider when Jesus fed the 5,000 in Matthew 14, and, and he fed the 4,000 in, in chapter 15. You remember he did so with a little boy's lunch, which, which consisted of both fish and bread. Or Matthew 26, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, uh, what were the two items? Well, uh, there was wine and there was bread. Uh, and of course, with Passover, there would be lamb as well. So bread was an important source of food. But ultimately, Jesus wants us to genuinely trust the Lord with uh, supplying our needs. Through prayer, we learn to trust in his ability to provide for us more than our ability to provide for us. I'm willing to bet, particularly you men, but not exclusively the men, I bet you've lost a lot of sleep over the years trying to figure out how you're going to make it. You get that first apartment, you buy that first house, you start that first job, and the bills start stacking up. All the student loans come in, that first mortgage comes in, that new car payment comes in, and all the and, and inflation shows up and everything else. And you're spending a lot of time, can't sleep at night, trying to figure out, do I need to grab another job? And if so, how am I going to find another job? I'm working a lot of hours now as it is. Or, or, or should my spouse get another job? Or should we start charging the kids rent? You start coming up with all kinds of ways because you think it all depends on you. Here, Jesus shows us that when we come before the throne of God, what we realize is that God has already taken care of everything. It doesn't mean that we don't make wise decisions or good decisions, but it does mean that at the end of the day, go to sleep. God's got this taken care of. This is a theme we see throughout the Sermon on the Mount. For example, in Matthew chapter 6, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, which you will wear, is not life more than food and body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in the barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than them? Or you can go to chapter 7. You'll see the same thing, verses 9 to 11. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, you'll give him a stone? Or, or, or if they ask for a fish, you'll give them a snake. If you then, though you are evil, notice the comparison. Compared to God, we are uh, quite down here on the righteous scale. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more so your heavenly father? So you see that this is a regular prayer that we say, Lord, I trust in your provisions. And in coming before God with that daily prayer, we are confessing humbly that the Lord is the one who takes care of everything. You realize that God is the one that gave you your spouse. God is the one that's given you your house. God is the one that's given you your job. God is the one that's drawn you to this church. God is the one that's provided for you all these years. 
doesn't mean, again, that we don't be smart and wise and, and everything else, but it does mean is that God is the one who, who got us through that education. God is the one that got us through those troubling times. God is the one who does these things. Give us this day our daily bread. You realize that in our prayers, we are confessing our inadequacy. I cannot heal my loved ones. I cannot heal myself. I was quite dizzy this morning, you know. Well, Dayquell did it, you know, honestly. But, 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 but we, we can't heal each other. I can't provide for myself. I can't provide for my children and in my family. I can't save the lost or, 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 my, or my friends and neighbors. What I need is for God's sovereign fatherly care to shine upon me. That's what we all need. And so we pray, give us this day our daily bread. That's a physical request. That's the natural reading of that, no doubt. But I do think there's a more subtle reading that, that is equally important in our prayers. We should pray for our physical needs. That is no doubt. But we should also pray for our spiritual needs. I think that's right here in this text. It certainly is true in verses 12 to 13. Throughout the Bible, food in general and bread in particular are used as metaphors for our spiritual needs. We've already looked at some of these in passing, but we can look at others. Think about it. In Genesis chapter 3, we come across the original sin of man. What did it involve? Food. Food. They ate of the tree of, 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 of knowledge. In Genesis 25, Esau is starving. He's, he's a hunter, and it's hunting season, and he didn't get that deer. And so he's walking through, coming home, and he smells uh, that Jacob, his, his brother, is, is quite the cook, and he's got some sort of stew a cooking, and it's literally the red stuff in Hebrew. And what does he do? He gives up his birthright for a bowl of soup. Later, Jacob will take that birthright and his mother will provide a meal for his aging blind father. And through that meal and other deceptions, he gets uh, everything else, his inheritance from Esau's inheritance from his father. In Exodus, <coughs> excuse me, in Exodus, the Jews complain regarding manna in the wilderness. And God uh, judges them in one sense, but he ends up providing for them in another. The story of temptation we looked at, turning stones into bread. In John chapter 6, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, they want to make him king. And Jesus says, the only reason you want me to be king is because you want your bellies full. And the Bible takes that metaphor of our appetites and our, and our desires and, and uses it uh, with a spiritual interpretation. Um, let, me, let me give you a few examples here. Romans chapter 16. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. Same thing in 1 Timothy 6. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy. Ever known people who starve for controversy? Yeah, 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 I do. They love business means and churches, by the way. But they love it. They love the drama. They, they love all that sort of stuff. And, and, and Paul uses the language of the appetites to describe such a person. A few verses down in verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We know that part of the verse. But the rest of it we skip. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith. Notice that, that we, we became hungry for poison. We became hungry for things that weren't good for us. And, and so our diet, our spiritual diet, wasn't good. Uh, uh, Solomon hints at this in Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 5. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. In chapter 6, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. You know, one of the things I've learned as I've aged is, is that you got to lose weight, and that's difficult to do. 
And, and we know how to lose weight. You exercise and you diet. Those are the two things. Eat right and live right. That's, that's, how, that's how you lose weight. Now, now, you can try all the fads all you want, but at the end of the day, you got to cut down on the calories and you got to burn calories. That's the way to do it. And I'll tell you something I've learned. For most people, exercise comes easy. We, most of us could right now go for a long walk. I live a mile from here. If I wanted to burn about 100 calories or more, I could just walk home right now. That comes quite easy. The hard part is the dieting parts. Uh, I think it was Friday, Saturday. I, my, my days are sort of mixed because I haven't felt too good. But I think it was Friday. Uh, I went to go eat dinner with uh, some of my extended family. Uh, dad, is, dad is a bachelor right now. Pray for my mother. And so he, he's, he's, doing, he's doing all the things he always does that gets him in trouble. So I went up, joined him for dinner with, with some of our family up in northern Kentucky. And, and it was at Old Charlie's uh, in the Florence area. And I got a four-layer chocolate cake. It was as good as you assume it is. It was so good. I ate my whole thing, and then I said, yes, I want some dessert. And it was a big old giant cake. I, my dad took a picture. I put the spoon up against the cake. The cake was almost as tall as the spoon. That's good there, ain't it? Nothing about that's healthy. You can say, well, it has eggs in it. Yeah, okay, okay. You know, that's about it. Nothing about that's healthy. Man, I love me some chocolate cake. I like anything with chocolate in it. Dieting is the hard part. Knowing that, that, that we should cut back on things that aren't healthy for us and to, 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 to take the things that are healthy for us. Most of us are either spiritually starved or we are spiritually malnourished. Some of us, as to use the language of Jesus in the Sermon Mount, are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, but we have been fed in unhealthy spiritual diets. Others are simply starving but don't know where to look. Either way, what we need for the Lord to provide for us is, 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 is spiritual food. And the Lord promises to satisfy our spiritual needs. Let me give you two examples here in Psalm 63. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Four-layer chocolate cake is what that means in the Hebrew. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Notice there that, that with your worship and your joy and in your, your following after Jesus comes satisfaction. Isaiah 55, come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come. Buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 55 is not a traveling salesman who runs a food truck when he wrote that. He's calling anyone who would hear him to repent and come to the Lord. And he uses the language of food to make his point. Look, look, you should pray for your physical needs. We pray for the physical needs of the people we love for. Tomorrow we'll gather at 2 o'clock and we will pray for everyone who's sick and hurt and suffering. But let it be you are equally praying for your spiritual needs. Think about it. You're more likely to pray about your ingrown toenail than you are about your anger issues. You're more likely to pray about Aunt Flossie who's in, who, who's in and out of doctor's offices as you should than you are about some of your other spiritual needs. Difficult marriage your own bitterness, and everything else that goes along with it. Prioritize your spiritual needs. Let's look at the last component of a good prayer, and that is confession, verses 12 to 13. This is a continuation of the addressing of our spiritual needs. I believe hinted at in verse 11, made very clear in verses 12 to 13. If adoration properly orientates our prayers towards the Creator, confession uh, orientates our prayers toward our Redeemer. Your greatest need in prayer is to address your sin. 
The greatest need of your prayer is to address your sin. And to do so, there are three things we have to do in that process. Notice, first of all, Jesus tells us to confess. He tells us to confess our sins. Now, when we confess our sins, we don't justify our sins. I know I lost my temper, Jesus, but have you met my in-laws? That's not what Jesus is telling us to do. It's rather, I should not choose anger. I must address my envy. I must address my pride. Confession forces us to look into our hearts and address these issues. Now notice here when he says forgive our debts, the implication is I am a sinner in need of forgiveness. Jesus never assumes his followers are righteous. He assumes they are sinners. And where do we take our sins? Social media? Of course. No, we take them to the Lord where when we bring our sins before the throne, he washes us clean all over again. Some of us here may think that because I got saved, I must be fine or God's already taken care of all that. And there's some truth in that. But the Bible encourages us to regularly, to daily, to seek the forgiveness of God. We must confess our sins. Secondly, notice that Jesus commands us to forgive others. Forgive our debts, he says there, verse 12, as we have forgiven our debtors. One of the main reasons we ought to seek God's grace is so that we can practice God's grace. Notice that Jesus assumes that his disciples are practicing forgiveness. In fact, this isn't the only place we'll find this. You can go to verse 14 and 15, right at the Lord's Prayer. What does it say there? If you forgive others their trespasses, your, your heavenly Father will do the same thing for you. You can go back all the way to chapter 5, verses 23 to 26. There, Jesus says, if you bring your gift to the altar and you realize you have irreconcilable problems with someone, your neighbor, then you must leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled and you can't reconcile without addressing the issues of confession and forgiveness and so in the prayer the assumption is that having received grace i show grace having been forgiven i must forgive and prayer is a great way for the lord to remind us that we are not practicing this one of the most practical things you can do in your spiritual life is learn to forgive and to be reconciled pray the lord will guide you in our spiritual duty to forgive and reconcile. Thirdly, he wants us to acknowledge our weaknesses. There in verse 13, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. The language common in our translation here is a bit misleading. Notice the language that God lead us not into temptation. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, tells us God doesn't tempt us. But rather, uh, perhaps a better translation would be uh, that, that let us not succumb to temptation. And the point here is to see that we are weak and we are easily led astray. I've already made it clear that I love sports. Um, my favorite soccer team played this morning and they won, by the way, in case you cared. I know no one did, but, but I love sports. I love basketball, football, Super Bowl Sunday. I, I love baseball, soccer, real football. I, I love all of that sort of stuff. And my problem as a fan is that when I watch a game, when I get ready for a game, I highlight the weaknesses of my team more than the weaknesses of the other team. I don't know. I don't, there are some fans who see no weaknesses with their team. I see all of them. We can't break down a 2-3 zone. I don't know what we're going to do, how we're going to win this game. That's all they do is break down 2-3 zones. Or, 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 you know, we just don't know what to do with a low block. We can't score on a low block. Or, or we, our defense isn't up to snuff and their offense is too tough. I'm more of a negative fan like that. But in sports, 
And this is why coaches have the advantage that you and I don't have. In sports, what the coaching staff does is they spend the, the, the time between games studying the, the weaknesses of the other opponents. You may be able to say, sure, we don't have much of an inside game, but neither does our opponents. We can exploit them there. Right? And, and, and that's the way sports work. Well, in many ways, this is how spiritual warfare works. Your enemy knows every weakness you have. Every bit of it. And Jesus mentions two of our three primary enemies. The flesh and the devil he mentions. But we could add to that the world. The world, the flesh, and the devil are your three primary opponents. And all three know what your weaknesses are. What we must do is cry out to the Lord for help when it comes to our flesh. It is, he is wanting us to confess that we are weak. Sin doesn't happen in a vacuum, but rather in our weakness, we are led astray. You remember what Jesus said in his, uh, uh, when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane? Matthew 26, he goes to the disciples and he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, where have I read that before? Oh yeah, the model prayer. Lead us not into temptation. Don't let us succumb to temptation. He says, now, now pray that you won't go into, into temptation. Now notice what he says. The spirit is willing, Peter. You, you, you've got the arrogance of a teenager, just like every teenage boy that's ever lived. The problem is not your willingness to do the right thing. It's the weakness of your flesh. You'll end up doing the wrong thing. But notice the reference to the devil. Deliver us from evil. Now, your translation may read slightly different. Your translation may say, deliver us from the evil one. And this is a matter of debate among scholars. There's no uh, agreement across the board, and it really doesn't matter. And I think the ambiguity is purposeful. It could be evil in general or, or a, uh, uh, a, a spiritual warfare in particular. Both work the same. Regardless, what we see is, is that we have one who knows all of our weaknesses, knows how to lead us astray, how to lead us away from, from the Lord. And what is Jesus saying? That as you confess your sins, you are confessing your weaknesses, and pray the Lord will protect you. Think about it. Go back to the, the sports illustration. Is, is that when you watch film, you discover the weaknesses of your opponents. All the while acknowledging your own weakness. But we have an advantage. We have an advantage in the spiritual warfare. You know what it is? Christ has conquered the grave. He's conquered the grave. And so when we come before the Father... We come before one who is victorious. We come before a king, the one who crushes the heads of serpents, who has defeated death by being raised, and he cleanses us of all unrighteousness. So what do we have to fear? If we come boldly to the Father in prayer, we can fight against temptation. We can triumph over sin, but not without prayer. And not without the Lord's help. Well, many of you all know my love of history. And I've discovered from the internet all men apparently love Roman history. And uh, the Romans, uh, in the age of the Republic, were trying to extend their, their empire, as you can imagine. There was one enemy they just could not defeat. It was Carthage. And they were led by a general by the name of Hannibal. Hannibal had an advantage in warfare that the Romans didn't. He had access to elephants. And the Romans just couldn't stop him. They didn't know what to do. After losing battle, after losing battle, 
a Roman general by the name of uh, Scipio Africanus came up with a brilliant idea. How do you defeat this enemy? How do you turn the enemy's strength into their weakness? So what he did during battle, he didn't charge. He, he, let the, uh, he let Carthage come after him. When their big, giant elephants that were intimidating had defeated them over and over again, he let them just come right in. And when they came, he divided the, the, the military in so that the, 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 the elephants were now right in the middle of their soldiers, the Roman soldiers. At that point, surrounded by the Romans, the Romans blew a bunch of trumpets scaring the elephants. And so the elephants, armed with everything, including all the soldiers who were shooting arrows and everything else, began to panic and ran away. With such a strategy, the Romans could charge and ended up defeating one of the greatest generals this world's ever seen in Hannibal. Our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, know it doesn't take much to lead us astray. We are weak, but there's good news. We worship a Savior who is our strength, and we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. What we need is for the God of armies, the Lord of hosts, to stand by our side and to fight for us. The means of such an army comes through prayer. So I don't know what sort of prayer you need to offer here this morning. Maybe it is a prayer for salvation. Maybe you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. I beg of you, do not leave here today without praying to the Lord of hosts our Creator and Redeemer. Pray, and He will answer you. He will save you. Maybe you're here and you, you have come in weakness and trepidation and fear and anxiety and worry. You're, you're overburdened with sin and shame and guilt. The good news is we have a Savior who can meet all of those needs if you would but cry out to Him. I'm going to ask that you come in this time of invitation. And together, let us cry out to the Lord that he may meet our needs. Come, let us repent. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I ask you to be so kind as to help us.